When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast. I'm glad you're here. I hope something you hear today encourages you. Job's face is red with weeping. Um, I challenge you to find a description of grief like this. Um, We find it in some ancient literature. Um, Literature from this time that we have are few and far between. We have the Code of Hammurabi, which is long before this. Um, We have Egyptian writing of magic spells and incantations and things like that. We do have some poetry from uh, Sumer and Akkad and places like that in the Mesopotamian area. And we have like Homer's Iliad, which is more recent than this. But um, Job's words stand alone in all of ancient literature as the description of what it means to be human at times in our life, especially human in the way that we have questions about God. Right before the section that Barbara read, he says that I was at ease and God broke me in two. God seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and shows no mercy. You know, there's really like no more escaping reality for Job. He knows what he's up against, that What he's up against is not just a human conflict. Um, It is not just his own um, getting his just desserts or getting something he deserves because he did something bad, consequences for his actions. But there is some huge story that he is involved in, and God has specifically targeted him. And he's not wrong about this. It is strange that every time Job speaks, he gets a little bit closer to the truth, the ultimate truth of his story, Um, that what is happening to him is part of a much bigger story than just a guy that's suffering on this planet. Uh, And that is disturbing in a way, but it also is what Job wants to know. Most of us when we're faced with suffering and tragedy and loss and grief, we want to know stuff. Um, Just like when we have a painful medical symptom or some weird symptom that's happening to us, um, sometimes we just want to know what it is. And if we can't find out what it is, we'll go to every doctor we can find until we get a name for what... It doesn't take away our grief. It doesn't take away our pain or suffering. But knowing something is the path forward. Humans have always known that knowing about what is happening to us does, will help us to bear it. 
as Viktor Frankl said, he who, or Nietzsche, I think, said, I'm not sure which one, one existentialist said, he who, he who can know the why can bear any how. In other words, if you can know why something is happening, you can have more strength to endure it. It is in the senselessness of our pain and struggles and difficulties that make it the most difficult. And Job, has, his face is red with weeping. Um, his friends scorn him. He has tears for his losses. All he wants is for someone to be his friend, to be his neighbor, and ultimately for God to be his neighbor. He's despairing. He wants to die. He wants it to end. Uh, He knows that his days are short. I like where he befriends the worm. He says, the worm is my mother or my sister. Um, The worms that will consume him in the grave uh, are his best friends. It doesn't get more stark than that. Um, This is his feeling. This is real. Um, And no one can really see this. His friends can't really see it. They can't see that what he's up against is God and God's self. Um, I think Jesus understood this more than anybody when he was here in this mortal life. Um, What did Jesus pray about when he went off at night alone in the wilderness? And his disciples wondered where he was. Um, What did Jesus say to God in those moments? What were his conversations with the Almighty on those barren hillsides of Galilee and in the wilderness of Judea? We don't really know for sure. But if the one description of his nightly prayers that we have in the Gospels tell us something, the Garden of Gethsemane is where we do hear his real voice in prayer. And it is a lot like Job. It sounds a lot like Job. Why is this happening to me? What do you want me to do, God? I know what you want me to do, but I don't want to do it. I'm struggling. I'm having trouble. I am questioning. I have doubts. I have fears. I have anxieties. I want to die. Um, I can only imagine that the content of Jesus' prayers when he goes off alone throughout his entire ministry is the same thing that we find here in Job. Real questions about life. Is this what my life is, to live for 33 years and then get crucified? Is this what you want me to do, O God? Um, Jesus' prayers are our prayers. We've often said that when we pray the Psalms together, We're praying on a couple levels. One level is the original psalmist level, whoever wrote that psalm, sometimes King David, sometimes Moses, sometimes some other characters um, that we don't know who they are, wrote those psalms. And we are praying their prayers with them, the original psalmist. On another level, when we pray the psalms, we're praying in our own voice that we have those same concerns, those same prayers, those same anxieties, those same fears. 
And we are praying our own prayer to God in the Psalms. And the third level of praying the Psalms is praying with Jesus. Jesus prays the Psalms. On the cross, he prays Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He prays the Psalms other times as well. Um, And when we pray the Psalms, we're praying with Jesus. And I think it's true with Job too. When we pray these poems with Job, we understand Job and we know his story. We know why he's praying like this. We know our own story and we pray with Job when we were feeling like this. And then we know Jesus' story. And Jesus is praying these prayers too. Jesus is saying, I was at ease and he broke me in two. Jesus is saying, he seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. Jesus is saying, he set me up as his target. His archers surround me. Jesus is saying, he slashes open my kidneys and shows no mercy. Jesus is saying, he pours out my gall on the ground. He bursts upon me again and again. He rushes at me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. Jesus is saying, my face is red with weeping and deep darkness is on my eyelids. Jesus is saying, though, is, though there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. O earth, do not cover my blood. Let my outcry find no resting place. And unlike Job, Jesus does die. He dies, he goes into the grave, into Sheol, into the abode of the dead. And there in the heart of the earth, he goes to the very depths of hell. And he rescues us. He rescues all those who are confined in that place. It's often called the harrowing of hell. In a few moments, we will say that in our creed. He descended into hell. And he did that because he loved us. He did that because there is no place we can go where God is not present. Though I make my bed in hell, you are there, the psalmist says. And so unlike Job, who lives longer, Jesus dies. He goes through that experience. And I wonder if the first person that he saw when he went to that hell to rescue his followers there. Um, I wonder if that first person that he saw was Judas. And he saw him, the one who betrayed him on that last night before he died, the one who bears the weight and burden of that guilt, the one who laid his hand on the table with Jesus, as he says in Luke. Because Jesus has gone through death. He is the post-traumatic Jesus. He is the one who has endured the five great wounds of his life, his hands, his feet, his side, and the so many other invisible wounds that no one ever sees, that he bears in his mind, his heart, and his body. It is this Jesus that the church knows. 
the Jesus who prays the prayers of Job, the Jesus whose face is red with weeping. There's that beautiful verse. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, and the the verse divisions in the Bible are completely arbitrarily made up by Bishop Usher. They're quite recent, um, and so there's not a lot of significance to attach to them. But for some reason, when I was a kid, I memorized what the shortest verse in the Bible was, John eleven thirty five, and it's two words, and it's the words Jesus wept. And, you know, I don't know how you imagine Jesus weeping. Um, if you imagine him sort of having a movie star tear come down his eye, um, or if you imagine a full-on ugly cry, his face is red with weeping at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. That Jesus weeps, and maybe he weeps like Job, with his face red and weeping, and it's kind of disturbing to see. But to know that God weeps, that God knows you in your weeping, sometimes that's all we can do, is weep. And it is in then, in those moments, that we know Jesus even closer, because he is the one who has wept on this planet as well. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Today is the feast day of one of my uh, favorite saints, and if you've ever spent some time in the Diocese of Oklahoma, you know uh, this saint quite well, and we who are next door to Oklahoma should know him as well. Um, David Pendleton Okerhater, a deacon and missionary who died in 1931. He is known as God's warrior. Um, This was an epithet or a way to make fun of him um, that he embraced. David Pendleton Okerhater is known among the Cheyenne Native Americans of Oklahoma. Um, The title is an apt one for this apostle of Christ to the Cheyenne was originally a soldier who fought against the United States government with warriors of other tribes in the disputes over Indian land rights. He was born right around 1851, and uh, by the late 1860s, as a very young man, Oker Hader had distinguished himself for bravery and leadership as an officer in an elite corps of Cheyenne fighters. Um, During the American Civil War, uh, Native Americans were involved in the Civil War, siding on the side of the Confederacy or on the side of the Union, depending on a number of factors here in Texas. Um, Many of the Native Americans that had lived in Texas had already been deported and exiled to Oklahoma as um, 
that land was designated uh, for Native Americans before the Civil War, but um, many of the tribal groups had allied on either side of that. And, and yet, during the Civil War, the American government and the Confederacy as well was focused on fighting against each other and not fighting against Native Americans. So there was this brief uh, kind of revival of Native American strength that happened during the Civil War um, in America, especially in Oklahoma and, and parts of Texas, that when the Civil War is over, suddenly these tribal groups that had very little power and very little people um, had flourished during the Civil War to some degree. And so after the Civil War, um, there was all numerous veterans of the American Civil War on the Confederacy and the Union fought against Native Americans using Civil War style tactics and beyond uh, total war to annihilate uh, Native American tribal groups that um, were accused of various crimes and violations of um, treaty and reservation violations. The term that we sometimes hear today, someone went off the reservation, is a term from this period of time, meaning that young Native American warriors especially were not allowed to leave the designated reservation. It was a crime punishable by death or some other punishment uh, for even stepping one foot outside of the designated area. Native Americans were not allowed to travel freely, especially for hunting and things like that. Many of the animals they hunted at this period were still migratory. And so this was a harsh restriction on Native Americans. And so whenever I hear that term, someone went off the reservation, it is a um, harks back to this very racist and violent time in our history where these, um, these were uh, enforced. Um, but David Okerhader um, distinguished himself in this, this uh, guerrilla corps that fought against the American government. In 1875, there, after a year of minor uprisings and threats of major violence, he and 27 other warrior leaders were taken as prisoners of war by the U.S. Army. He was charged with inciting rebellion and sent to a disused military prison in Florida. Um, when you think about the politics of this, um, how could someone who saw themselves as an independent nation be, cons can be accused of an insurrection when you are part of a sovereign nation? At this time in America, Native Americans, by and large, were not allowed to be U.S. citizens. Um, neither were Chinese people and a number of other racial groups um, were not allowed to be considered as U.S. citizens. So how in the world could a non-citizen who was part of an oppressed group of people, small in number, um, with very little political or military power, be accused of this? Um, the politics of this time were volatile and violent, and um, the more we read about them from that time period, um, the more surprising it is. Um, Empire of the Summer Moon is a good book that details the last days of the Comanche. The Comanche and the Cheyenne were often at odds, but often allied together. 
um, during this time period. Um, but there's a lot of good books written about this time period. Um, and hopefully the ones that we read are um, capture the, the, um, the predicament that people were in during this time and the, um, the lack of justice for Native Americans in almost every case of Native American violence or raids or other things that were documented, they were often in retaliation for murders against Native American people. If a white person murdered a Native American uh, person, there was no court of law that, that they could be prosecuted in in any way, shape, or form. There was no justice for Native Americans after these murders. And so often mur the retaliation for murder was a raid. Um, and so you can see how violence escalated when there was no justice. The justice system in America and all around the world and all the way back to the day of Moses and Amurabi um, is always a way to try to limit violence, to say, um, we're going to settle this in court and punish someone who's done something wrong so that that person's family doesn't have to take vengeance for themselves. Um, family vendettas and violence retributive violence, vigilante violence is always what happens when there is no justice system, there's no court, there's no fairness. And so um, this is what was happening all across the American West. Um, under the influence of a very concerned and caring Army, U.S. Army captain who sought to educate the prisoners of war, Oker Hader and his companions learned English. Um, and they gave art and archery lessons um, to the area's many visitors while they were in captivity. And this is where they had their first encounter with the Christian faith. We have some of David Okerhader's art. Um, if you Google that, you can see some of his artwork there. The captain's example and that of other concerned Christians from uh, as far away as New York had their effect on the young warrior he was moved to answer the call to transform his leadership in war into a lifelong ministry of peace. Um, with a sponsorship from the Diocese of Central New York and financial help from a Mrs. Pendleton of Cincinnati, he and three other prisoners went north to study for the ministry. You can see how his life really took a turn from galloping across the plains of Oklahoma, um, fighting against U.S. Army soldiers, being captured, being a prisoner, and then moving to Syracuse, New York, to study for the ministry. Um, quite a, quite a <laughs> travel in his life. Um, he was baptized in Syracuse in 1878 and took the name David Pendleton Okerhater in honor of Mrs. Pendleton, his benefactor. Soon after his ordination to the diaconate in 1881, Okerhater returned to Oklahoma. There he was instrumental in founding and operating schools and missions through great personal sacrifice and often in the face of apathy from the white church hierarchy and resistance from the U.S. government, which was um, extremely oppressive against Native peoples during this time and, and extremely corrupt. Um, the Indian agents that were originally assigned to manage the reservations for the U.S. government were nearly 100% of them were um, profiting off of that personally and not passing resources to Native Americans who had no other means of subsistence um, other than the government um, cattle and other um, flour and things that they were getting from the U.S. government. 
And many of these um, Indian agents were so corrupt that um, the natives would appeal to Washington to have them removed. Um, eventually, U.S. Grant and other presidents appointed church denominations to um, administer Indian reservations across the American West. Um, this wasn't much better. It cut down on some of the corruption, but it also, um, churches are not great political managing um, solutions for large uh, groups of people. Uh, imagine if a church was put in charge of Pflugerville, um, any church, the Baptist church, the Episcopal church. Um, you can imagine how weird that would be and how terrible that would be when it came to basic services. Um, so this was a system he was forced to work in. So his life was a lot of struggle against the U.S. government, um, just as he fought them with guns and bows and arrows and tomahawks. He fought them um, with his own personal um, courage and um, fought for resources for his people. He continued his ministry of service and education and pastoral care among his people until his death on August 31st, 1931. Half a century before, the young deacon had told his people when he came back to them after being ordained, he said, you all know me. You remember when I led you out to war, I went first and what I told you was true. Now I've been away to the east and I've learned about another captain, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is my leader. He goes first. And all he tells me is true. I come back to my people to tell you to go with me now in this new road, a war that makes all for peace. O God of unsearchable wisdom and mercy, you chose a captive warrior, David Okerhater, to be your servant and sent him to be a missionary to his own people and execute the office of deacon among them. Liberate us who commemorate him today from bondage of self from bondage to self, and empower us for service to you and to the neighbors you have given us through Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.